Uh, tonight we're going to start actually a series on the book of, of Job, and it's going to be a little different than the usual series that we do through a book, in that we're not going to consider every single verse of the book. For example, once we get to chapter 4 through 27, so in those 24 chapters, we're going to have two lessons on, on them. And uh, that happens to be the most difficult part of the book as well, so we're just going to breeze through it, and so we don't have to figure out exactly what's going on uh, there. But why is it that I thought it would be important for us to look at the book of Job right now in the life of our church? Uh, The main reason is because currently we're not going through a lot of suffering, at least not a lot of acute suffering in our church. You know, everybody's dealing with something in their lives, but there's not a lot of uh, acute suffering going on. And when that happens, we, we pretend that our lives will proceed really uninterrupted by trials or sorrow. But the reality is that the phone call will come. The diagnosis will be given. Um, loneliness will strike. Life will change in an instant. Suffering will interject in, in our lives. And it's better to... to Talk about suffering before you're in the midst of it than during. And specifically, as we talk about suffering and the sovereignty of God as well. You know, uh, I'm not sure that it is super uh, encouraging to, for us to stand on the bedside in the hospital of somebody dying and just saying that whatever is happening is God's sovereignty. That's true. And there's a measure of comfort there, uh, but perhaps there are other things that we could be doing at that time as well. And as we look at the book of, of Job, these are the type of questions that we want to be ask, asking and answering. Now, how do we prepare for these inevitable moments in our lives? How do we prepare to help others as they experience and endure such moments? Are we going to be like the three friends of Job? Or is there a better approach to uh, helping people? What do we say? How can we uh, help? Will we be ready when suffering comes to us? How will we deal with it and make sense of it? How will we persevere through it? Especially as acute suffering becomes a chronic suffering. Now, somebody dies for so the first few weeks. Everybody is, is uh, knocking on the door. Everybody's bringing meals. Everybody's showing concern. But then it gets to the point where people have to go their own ways. And what, how do we deal with suffering at that point where the void becomes even more uh, present at that time? And one thing we need to realize is that reality is common to the human experience. We have to keep that in mind. Sorry, my phone is backwards here. Disappeared letters. So, the reality of suffering is common to the human experience. If you're a human, you're going to experience suffering at some point in, in your life. The, and the existence of human suffering is one of the most powerful obstacles to accepting the reality that there is a good and all-powerful God. Uh, that is really, the, humanly speaking, the biggest obstacle to faith is the reality of suffering and the existence of a good and all-powerful God. 
and, and this is a very difficult subject. And there are no easy answers to the questions that arise from human suffering. And yet God in His goodness gave us an entire book of the Bible, the book of Job, dealing with this. And it's a big book too. It's not you know, like Jude or Third John. It's a huge 41 chapter long book dealing with suffering. And I have three main goals as we go through this series. Okay? One is I want us to know the book of Job better and be able to benefit from it in our lives. Of all the books of the Bible, this is for myself, of all the books of the Bible, Job is the one that I have not known what to do with. Uh, particularly those middle chapters, uh, from chapter 4 through 27. I don't know, well, beyond that, even through chapter 31, I don't know what to do with those chapters. Job is a very difficult book to apply because almost everyone, including Job, is wrong at the end. So it's difficult to figure out, okay, okay, are they right here or are they wrong? And so on. So that's why you often only hear sermons about uh, Job 1 and 2 and then 39 to the end. Because when God's speaking, you're kind of pretty sure that he's right. So you don't have to worry about, uh, about that. But the, the rest of the book is a little more difficult to, to do that. So that's, uh, Job is a difficult book to apply. And especially uh, true of the three friends of Job. Have you ever read through it and say, that's exactly what I said to Job in that situation? That's how I feel it. Uh, uh, often when I read the Bible, I find myself identifying with the bad guys. Not, not because I want to be the bad guy, but that, that this, shamefully, that's exactly how I would act. I think if, if I live in Jesus, the time of Jesus, and this is going to be a big surprise to all of you, I think I'll be a Pharisee. Uh, I think that's what <laughs> my personality would lend itself uh, uh, to. So what, what these friends say, they, they, it sounds so good and true at times, yet God at the end really rebukes them for the things that they said. So the first thing I want to do is I want to, us to know the book of Job better and be able to benefit from it in our lives. Not just know the intricacies of the book, but actually be able to apply it and live it out. Secondly, I want us to be able to glorify God as both sovereign and good, despite the reality of human suffering. I want us to see that human suffering, suffering in general, does not deny the goodness and the sovereignty of God. And thirdly, I want, us to, I want to prepare us to better understand and deal with the suffering that we may experience in our lives, while at the same time equipping us to more effectively minister to others who may be experiencing suffering in their lives. Not only equip us to, to deal with suffering in our lives, but also equip us to help others. Uh, remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1? That trials, so suffering comes to your life, so that, you can be, so that you can be comforted by the God of all comfort, and then turn around and comfort others with the comfort that you received from God during that time. So that's the goal for this series, this Considering Job series. Any questions or comments before we continue? All right. Job is a challenging book to study and listen to. And when I mean listen to, I don't mean that you're going to get an audio Bible and listen to it. Uh, what I mean by listen to is difficult to do what it says. It's difficult to accept what it says concerning suffering and God. And it is a challenging book because it is a big book. Again, 41 chapters, and some of them are fairly 
long. There's only a few books in the Bible that are longer than Job. But it's also challenging because it conveys its message through a mixture of prose, poetry, and wisdom, and employs a lot of repetition. And we need to figure out what we're going to do with that. In an age of tweets and emoji, uh, if you go back on your text chain, you're going to find a lot of times there's very few words, but lots of symbols. We're going back to be Egyptians, uh, you know, with hieroglyphs. but in the age of tweets and emoji, we struggle to stick to a book whose message can only be accessed by taking time to consider its poetry, reflect on its repetition, and meditate on its wisdom. To understand Job, we will need to work at it. So that's a challenge in, in, understanding, uh, in understanding Job. And in addition to that, if you are currently experiencing suffering in your life, you will find part of what the book of Job has to say very challenging. There will be times when we will simply not want to hear what the book of Job has to say. It's just going to be too hard to hear. So as we go through this glorious and challenging book, I will not promise that we will always find an answer that... uh, that we're not gonna, I'm, not, I'm not promising to you that the answers that we're going to find are always going to be satisfying to, you, to us. But I think I can promise you that Job will reveal profound truths to us if we listen attentively to its message. We may not like it, but I think we're going to see that this is from the Lord and that ultimately it will be good for us. Now, they say, you know, men tend not to want to do that, but when you go to a new place... Before you go, it's good to get uh, the lay of the land. Like maybe ask for directions. Figure out where you're going. Uh, look at some maps. Now, most of us men don't like doing that. We just go and then you know, pretend we're not lost. Um, but it's good to know where we're going. And we're, in the book of Job, it may be a, a new land for a lot of us. So let's take some time for the rest of the evening today to look at some basic information about the book of Job that will help us to understand its message better. And we're going to do that by asking seven questions um, of the book. Okay? And this is something that you can ask for any book of the Bible. You can use these to help you study any book of the Bible, be an introduction to any book of the Bible. And the first one is, who wrote the book of Job? Well, at the most basic level, who wrote the book of Job? God. God did. Okay? Uh, God is the ultimate writer of the scriptures. So in some sense, it's, it's irrelevant who the human author was, because we know that came from God. But in other sense, if we know who wrote it, we can, we can understand better the idiosyncrasies of the book and so on. We do know that uh, God chooses to com- chose to convey his message through the agency of inspired human authors. He says in 2 Peter 1.21, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the ultimate author is God, but God used men, people, to give us his word. And those men weren't robots. Their personality comes through. You can the best way to the best place to see that is in the four gospels. They're telling the same story, and yet you can see each one's personality coming through the, the, the each one of the gospels. The different vocabularies, the different um, uh, uh, approach to to writing. 
And sometimes we know exactly who wrote a book, a book of the Bible and have lots of information about them. Uh, probably the author, two authors that we have the most information about in the Bible is Luke. We know a lot about Luke, right? He's a doctor. He's from Philippi. He was a historian. He knew classical Greek. It's the only part of the Bible that we, we find classical Greek is in the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke. We know he was well-educated. And then we know a lot about Paul as well. We can say that we know a lot about Moses as well. But sometimes we don't know who the human author was. And that's the case of Job. Job is uh, technically an anonymous book as far as a human author goes. There's several suggestions. The Talmud, you've heard that word before, the Talmud is, the Talmud is just a collection of all the oral laws from the Jews, supposedly from the first century on, with a commentary on those oral laws. And the Talmud says, Moses wrote Job. Why? I don't know, somebody in the corner of the street decided one day that, oh, Moses wrote it, and then they wrote it down, and that was it. Other scholars suggest Solomon, because there's so much wisdom literature. Others say Job wrote Job. Others say Elihu wrote Job, which is one of the friends that we'll meet later. The reality is that nobody knows who the human author of Job was. Now, although we don't know the name of the author, we know a couple of things about him. We know he was a good writer. This is good writing. The book of Job is good writing in the original language. And given the complex nature of the use of literature, literary forms in the book, we can say that the author is clearly accomplished and skilled in wisdom literature. He knew how to write this stuff. We also know that the author is chosen to be a witness to an extraordinary thing. How many of us have been able to peek into heaven and see what God is talking to his angels? Now, this author was given that. So we don't know who the human author was, but we do know who the ultimate divine author was, and we know his character, and we know that what he gives to us is good. Uh, J- uh, James Durham was a Presbyterian Puritan in the 17th century, and he wrote a uh, Get this, they exist, a short commentary on the book of Job. And it's short, like 100 pages long. Contrary to, um, oh, there's another Puritan that preached for 10 years on the book of Job. Justin Carl. Yeah, so uh, that's not that. This is actually a readable commentary on the book of Job. And he says this, Be the writer who will, it is the spirit who is the indicter or the writer, who has left it to us for a spiritual jewel. And that's exactly what the book of Job is. The second question is, when did the events in the book of Job take place? When is the story happening? Here. Well, the book seems to fit the general age of the patriarchs. That's the, the age in the Bible described from Genesis 12 to Genesis 50. That's the, roughly the age of the patriarchs. So we're talking about... So the Exodus is about 1450 B.C., so maybe 500 or 600 years before that. So that's the, the window. We can narrow down the book of Job to a window of five to 600 years. Um, that's precision right there, right? <laughs> There's four reasons why uh, I think this is um, the case. The first is the divine, and this is a more, te- more technical one, so don't worry about this one very much, but the divine names of God in the book of Job are the same kinds of names used in Genesis 12 through 50. So there's that literary um, 
parallelism there. Secondly, the means of expressing the extent of Job's wealth also correspond well to the patriarch age. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 3, just as an example. There it says, also his, that is Job's possessions, were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. So the way that they account for how rich you were is very similar to what you read in Genesis 12 through 50 as well. Another reason why people think that he was rich, that the story is happening during that time is the age of, of Job. Job dies at 140 years of age. You see that in chapter 42, verse 16, which is kind of equivalent lifespan of the patriarchs. The less long-living patriarch was... Um, Moses, right? Though he's kind of already past the period of the patriarchs, he died at 120, and then things start to decrease uh, from from there. And fourthly, there's no explicit mentioning or implicit mention of the Levitical priesthood. And why is that important? Well, after the Levitical priesthood was, was instituted in uh, in the book in the books of the law, Exodus and Leviticus, then all sacrifices were done by the, Le- the Levites. And in Job 1.5, we find Job, if you look at there again, Job 1.5, we find Job sacrificing for his kids. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offering according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did that regularly. He did that regularly. It wasn't something... Sporadically, so it tells us that there is no Levitical priesthood yet, so puts him in the time of the patriarchs. So we're talking about 2,000 years before Christ. That's when this story is happening, somewhere around that time. Questions, comments before we continue? Yes. And I'm trying to speak fast and loud and excited to make this seem like it's exciting. <laughs> it's not super exciting, but it's good information. It's good to be good for us to be able to understand the book. Uh, later on, okay? Promise. Question number three, where did the events in the book of Job take? So know where, where, uh, when, 2,000 years before Christ, where? Where in the world is this swooping in? And here, finally, we have a better answer uh, from the book itself. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know exactly when it was taking place. But it says that Job lived in the land of Uz, or Uz, uh, however you want to pronounce. Our Georgia, Georgia brother says ooze. We say us. You know, and whatever. You even call Oz if you choose. The only problem is nobody knows where us or ooze was. So we kind of we try to put it together by deduction from other passages. Uh, because the Bible does speak about us. The first mention of it is in Genesis chapter 10. When it's not the, it's not the name of a city, it's the name of a place. Or, or not the name of a person. Us the son of Aram, the grandson of Shem. But often the name of people became the name of places in the Bible. And then the Lamentations, you know, that other book that we know a lot about, is also mentions the land of us for the first time where it says, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of us. So it does what? It equates us to what region? To Edom. Right, Edom, which was uh, 
the, the nation that came from Esau, the brother of Jacob. So when you put that all together, the scholars tend to come to a consensus that Uz was somewhere in, in either Saudi Arabia or in southern Jordan. That's where the green circle is. So that's where all this is taking place, inside of that green circle. At least we're going to say that's the case uh, for us today. Notice where it is. Notice where it's not. It's not in the promised land. It's not where the other patriarchs, patriarchs were at the time. No airports there either, right? Yes. Because Job would fly around, right? <laughs> There's no dragons listed in his wealth. But, uh, so Job, the, this can be an important thing for us to think about. It's not in the promised land. It's outside. It's among the nations. And I think that, that God doesn't do anything without a purpose. And this could indicate to us and it does indicate to us that this message of suffering is not just for a particular people, but it's an universal message. Remember how Scott talked about uh, that? how in Psalm 2 you find some Aramaic borrowed words? And Aramaic was the lingua franca of the nations. Everybody spoke Aramaic at the time. So if you want to say something for everybody to understand, that's how you would do. And this, God puts Job outside of Palestine. And I think to, to, to say this is an universal message. It's not just for the Jews. Is for the whole world what I have to say about human suffering. Any questions? So we have the who, we have the when, we have the where. What is next? The how, yes. How is the book of Job structured? Not quite the how you're thinking, but how is the book of Job is structured in seven parts? One and two, we kind of know that. And then it starts with Job super rich, lots of kids, kids partying. And Satan says, Satan is the first one to speak. In the, uh, Job is the first one to speak. And then God and Satan speak in the book of Job. And Satan says, uh, God says, hey, Satan, see, look at Job. He's a good guy, righteous, faithful. And Satan says, oh, wow, yeah. Because you, and every time I, I read that now, I think of Tim Hawkins. Uh, you put a hedge of protection around him. That's why he is uh, righteous and faithful to you. And that goes on. That, and that's the historical uh, narrative part of the book of, of Job in chapters 1 and 2. And I was thinking, as I was thinking about this this week, how do you... Job doesn't know that, right? The, the, we, the readers, know chapter 1 and 2, what's going on in heaven. Job doesn't know that. How do you think it would have changed Job's whole attitude, demeanor, ideas, perspective if he had known that? I don't have an answer for that. I'm, I'm truly just something. How would that have changed that? That all that devastation was directly by the command of God. You know, so the, how would that have changed him? Then chapter 3. Now, if you have your Bible, I want you to actually look at chapter 1, the formatting of chapter 1 and 2, and then look at the formatting of chapter 3. Do you notice how it's different? At least in my Bible, chapters 1 and 2 are just justified, right? so they have writing all the way across, no indentations. Chapter 3, then you have text indented from both sides, uh, parallelism indications there. Because that's why the poetry part of the book 
starts. And chapter 3 is Job's lament over what just happened. He, he starts lamenting. Uh, it's a visceral and poetic lament regarding his suffering. Look at the verse 11 of chapter 3 for a second. Job says, Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? I have to say, it's, it's very difficult to feel sympathetic for Job as he presents his case throughout the book. He comes across a little bit of as a whiner. Yes, that's the technical theological word that I wanted to find there, Tilly. Uh, and uh, in this one, well, I wish I had not, never been born then to go through, through that. And we say, I think we, we may not say it, but we feel like that at times as well. Uh, and then the book continues, and this is the most difficult part of the book, from chapters 4 to 27, because now we have the three cycles of dialogue between Job and his friends. And uh, they're talking back and forth. Job does most of the talking. And uh, we're, so Lord willing, we're going to spend two lessons on these. And uh, the friends try to explain to Job why he is suffering. And in response, Job responds to each of them with a defense of his moral integrity. It's interesting that Job often directs his speech not to the friends, but to God. Uh, like, look at chapter 7, verse 17 for a second. So, in the structure of the book, he is actually responding to uh, Eliphaz. Supposedly, that's what he's doing here, but he actually addresses God instead of Eliphaz. If you look at verse 17 of chapter 7, what is man that you, you notice that our editors are helping us by capitalizing that you, you notice what is man that you should exalt him, that you should set him, set your heart on him, that you should visit him every morning and test him every morning. It sounds, oh man, he's going good here. And then he, if you continue reading what Job is saying, that you do all these things for him, make him things like you care, and then you drop him. That's kind of the point that Job is making here. And most of these responses, he's actually complaining to God, and at the end, God rebukes Job at the, for his incessant desire to justify himself. Uh, Job sa- God says, no, you don't have to, do, to be justifying yourself. And then in chapters 28 to 31, if it wasn't enough, Job spends these whole chapters summarizing all the arguments as to why the friends and God were wrong. No. In summary, and he goes for another few hours yeah, you know, uh, there. And then a new, a new person comes in, Elihu, in chapters 32 through 37, and he rebukes the three friends and Job. And here, um, I think Elihu is a good guy, but there, uh, there is division. Some, a lot of people, most people think Elihu is a bad guy, and some people think that Elihu is a, a good guy. He's never rebuked at the end. Only the other three friends and Job are. So I tend to think, that he was a good guy. Even when I was in seminary, uh, Dr. Battle thought that Eli, who was a good guy, Dr. Mr. Uh, Professor Lane thought that he was a bad guy, so there's a division even then. But for the, our purpose, he's going to be a good guy. And then, uh, then we get chapter 38, 41. God finally intervenes. Now, throughout the book, Job put God in the dock. Now, side note. When I first saw the title of, of, of C.S. Lewis's book, God in the Dock, I thought, I, I truly thought there was a book about 
no, kind of figuratively book about sitting on the dock and fishing with God. I didn't, I didn't know what the expression in the dock meant, which is the place where you put the person being tried, right, in, in a court. I think that's what it is. So for the whole book, Job had God in the dock. But we get to these chapters, guess who is in the dock? Job is. And God starts asking him, cross-examining him. And notice that God mostly asks rhetorical questions. If you were to turn to, all the way to the end, of, of, to chapter 38, God doesn't give Job a lot of answers. God doesn't really tell him exactly why he was suffering. God doesn't uh, do that, but he does ask him a lot of rhetorical questions. And you know what a rhetorical question is, a question is right? It's a, generally a question that the answer is already implied, or that the audience already knows. Uh, the answer, unless you're a little kid and then you try to answer every time one of those, uh, unless you're Miles, right? And then you try to answer those all the time. But look at that verse, starting verse 2. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Now who is this who is saying all these things, blowing all this hot air yet not, doesn't know anything? Let me ask you a few questions. And then he spends quite a few chapters just asking Job questions um, to help Job see who he is. And then the book ends with an epilogue where God renders his verdict on Job and his friends and then he restores Job back together. So, these are all the characters. All the speaking characters. Sorry, there are more characters. But these are all the speaking characters in the order in which they appear. Like uh, the credits in order that they speak in, uh, in the book of Job. Only the first wife speaks. Remember her famous words? Curse God and die? Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> move on. And then one last question. What is the literary genre of the book of Job? You know our genre is, is, is a literary device to convey meaning. Uh, what is the expression that meaning is in the meaning is in the medium, right? Medium meaning is in the medium. There's a lot of meaning that's conveyed by how it is written, not just the words that are there as well. And it's important for us to know what generative things are, right? Can you imagine if you decide to interpret whatever legal documents you have, legal contracts, as poetry or allegory? You're not going to go very far, right? If you try to interpret the laws of the land as allegory, well, the Supreme Court does that a lot, uh, has done that a lot, but uh, uh, that's not how we interpret legal documents. In the same way, for example, if you don't understand that the Babylon Bee is a satire site, you might, you're not going to understand what they're saying. A few years ago, we were in Senate in, in Cincinnati, and one of the pastors in, in addressing the synod it just talks about how bad the church is, how, how people don't care about the Bible in churches. He even saw in the news that it was this church that was using a water slide for baptism. And he was serious. He had, somebody had shared the story of Babylon being on Facebook, and he didn't understand that was, that was a satire. And he, he, in front of an entire denomination, used that as the evidence of how the church doesn't care about the scriptures anymore. They were doing whatever they want to do, even using a slide for baptism. Uh, it would be kind of fun, but that's, that was not a true 
story. So it's important to understand the genre. The thing with Job is that it is all kinds of genres. It's the book of the Bible with the most diverse genres. It has poetry. It has historical narrative. It has dialogue. It has prose. It has prophecy. It has some even apocalyptic um, passages in it. So each little part of it has to be um, interpreted according to its genre, and we're going to try to do that. But it is a historical book. The Bible itself refers to the book of Job as a historical book. These, Job was a real person. Uh, in, both in uh, Ezekiel and in James, Job is referred to as a historical person. And I'm saying that because some people are now suggesting, supposedly Bible-believing people are suggesting that the book of Job is just a parable. That these things never happen is just like Aesop's fable. They're trying to teach a moral lesson through this. But if you say that, if you're willing to accept that, then the inerrancy, the, the, the infallibility of the scripture are denied because the Bible itself considers Job a real person, especially in Ezekiel, where he's named with uh, Daniel and with Noah uh, as real, real people. And then, why was the book written? That's the last thing we're going to talk. Why was the book written? Uh, uh, Historically, scholars have said that the book of Job was written to provide a theodicy. A theodicy is an effort to reconcile God's goodness and justice with the existence of human suffering and evil. A theodicy, in a nutshell, is trying to explain the origin of evil. How did evil enter into the universe. And Job does some of that, but that's not really its main purpose. The ultimate purpose for this book is not to provide an apologetic for the goodness of God. Because remember, when God comes in, what does he do? Not much, as far as explaining himself. As a matter of fact, he does no explaining of himself. He never answers the question to Job, why is it that I suffered? Which is the one question that Job has been asking the entire book. What God is here is he's concerned with correcting Job's misunderstanding of the world, rebuking for Job for his arrogance, and demonstrating that Satan was incorrect in his accusations against God and Job. And really, ultimately, what God is trying to do here is to correct a wrong but common human inclination. And that the inclination is to always think that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. That if I do everything right, everything is going to be great for us. We innately believe in a Joel Osteen sort of theology that we're going to live our best life. Now, if we just do these things, then we're going to get there. And, you know, the, bo- the book of Proverbs tells us that Generally, that's a true. If you walk righteously, the Lord's going to bless. And if we don't walk righteously, the, God, the Lord's not going to, to bless. But good people suffer. Christianity, biblical theology, is not a mathematical formula. The righteous can and do suffer. And sometimes they suffer even when they do everything right. The most righteous person to ever live suffered the greatest suffering in the history of humanity. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Very fast. Why should we care about this book? One, because in the Bible, out of 
one of only 66 books. So we need to care about, about it because it's in the Bible. Two, because Job deals with a subject matter that will touch all of our lives. Every Christian will suffer. Every person will suffer. Thirdly, the, this book provides Christians with a practical, uh, practical advice and examples of what to do and what not to do when ministering to people who are suffering. And Job reveals to us the glory of Jesus in subtle, indirect, but incredibly powerful ways. We're going to see that as well. So the book of Job foretells the gospel story of the suffering servant, and, and that is one of the reasons why we should be excited about studying and appropriating this book to us. Any questions or comments before we close in prayer? Oof. Spoke fast. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this book. We pray that we would be a people who is able to suffer well and that we'll be able to minister to those that are suffering. We pray that you would bless our journey through this book and we pray that you would prepare us for your day. Take us home safely. Bring us back into your house for us to worship you as with our brothers and sisters to ascend the holy hill of Zion and to be face-to-face with you in worship. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.